the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. On this episode, we're excited to be joined by Joe Koenig. Joe is a forensic linguist, fraud claims law specialist, former president of the Michigan FBI National Academy of Associates, inspector from the Michigan State Police, and owns and operates KMI Investigations, which specializes in financial investigations. In his new book, Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper, he applies his skills and knowledge to the Walter Recca confession tapes. Joe is a true professional, and it was great to hear his expert opinion firsthand. I know you'll enjoy this episode with my friend, Joe Koenig. All right, Joe. Well, I understand in the 70s you weren't working on the D.B. Cooper case. You were involved with something else. Right. And what was that you were working on? Well, there are a multitude of cases, but in uh, if you're referring to the Hoffa case, that began in July of 1975. And how did you get involved in the Hoffa case? Uh, when the abduction occurred, I was in um, the intelligence section for the Michigan State Police Organized Crime. We worked uh, organized crime in those days out of uh, the Detroit Artillery building, which was on eight mile near um, Southfield Road. Uh, and we, in addition to the, our own casework, we would often assist other departments when and if they ever ran into organized crime-related cases. In the Hoffa case, on the day of his abduction, July 30th, 1975, the Bloomfield Township Police called the state police for assistance, and I was assigned to help them. And eventually I became the lead investigator for the Michigan State Police. Uh, Then the FBI became involved, and um, I worked very closely with them as well as the Bloomfield Township Police throughout the, the next two years. So what happened to Jimmy Hoffa? Well, my uh, my opinion is that he was um, kind of a declared enemy of Anthony Proven, Tony Pro Provenzano, a, a mafia guy out of New Jersey who was affiliated with the Teamsters. And uh, when Hoffa was paroled, one of the conditions of his parole was that he would never run for office again for the Teamsters. Well, Hoffa got anxious after he got out and he decided he wanted to run for the presidency. And uh, he was so popular with the membership, uh, he was revered really by the Teamsters. He had done a, 
many good things for the Teamster members over the years. He had also done some shady things as well with uh, involved with organized crime, but he was revered by the membership and would almost certainly be reelected as president had he run. And uh, uh, the mob... Uh, apparently made the decision that they couldn't live with that, and uh, they took steps to take him out. And it was led by uh, Provenzano, uh, who sent uh, his uh, hitmen, a pair of twin brothers, Stephen and Thomas Andretta, and Gabriel and Salvatore Briguglio. Those four hitmen flew into Detroit, and um, I believe took off out, and uh, thus keeping Fitzsimmons in as president of the Teamsters. Do you think a body will ever be found? No. Well, speaking of people who will never be found, you got involved in another super famous missing persons case. I did. When were you asked to be involved in the investigation of Walter Recca? About mid-year uh, 2016. And how did that start on your end? Well, I got a, by that time I had written my first book entitled Getting the Truth, um, Discovering the Real Message, and uh, through Principia Media. So I, I got to know both Dirk Waringa and uh, Vern Jones of Principia Media. And uh, when this case uh, surfaced, Vern got a call one day from one of his editors who said, uh, hey, I've got a guy who says he, he knows who D.B. Cooper is. Are you interested? And both Dirk and Vern uh, took a closer look and eventually felt, hey, there's, there's meat on these bones. And... Uh, they uh, started accumulating information, and around mid-2016, uh, they felt uh, they were getting a little too deep and needed uh, my expertise to assist them in helping resolve the, uh, the case and see if it was, in fact, um, if the evidence was legitimately pointing toward Walter Recca as being D.B. Cooper. So they got me involved, and I started uh, working with them to evaluate the evidence. <clears throat> and then I eventually uh, became more, much more interested and uh, started developing evidence as well. When they first approached you with, hey, we got this D.B. Cooper thing going on, what was your first thought? Well, you know, we're all we're all skeptics. Um, Vern is very much a skeptic, and it took quite a bit of uh, uh, evaluation of the evidence before he believed, hey, maybe there's something to this. And uh, we uh, we were given by Carl Lauren, who was uh, D.B. Cooper, Walderecka's best friend who had recorded conversations with Walter in late 2008 to uh, the beginning of 2009. He had over three and a half hours of recorded conversations with Walter, wherein Walter admitted 
that he was D.B. Cooper. Uh, and really, that was the culmination of several years prior where the two of them had been talking. Uh, Carl had suspected Walter all along as being D.B. Cooper, and he finally talked Walter into confiding in uh, Carl, and that resulted in those recordings uh, in late 2008-2009, where Carl, uh, who was uh, very, uh, let's say, senior in his abilities to work with electronics, he had difficulty with the recording machine, so he always had to go with the tape recording machine. So he always had to go to his daughter's, call Walter, and then record the conversation from uh, from his daughter's house on that recorder. So all the re- all the recordings, and there were ten of them, uh, were done at Walter's daughter's house, and they were all the result of. Carl calling Walter, never, uh, and there were instances where Walter called Carl during that period uh, where it was unrecorded. And of course, there were unrecorded conversations prior to that 2008 recording, several years of them, where uh, finally Walter confided in Carl saying, "I, I just hate lying to you, Carl. I am D.B. Cooper, and that's where I got the title for the book, where he finally admitted to uh, Carl with the statement, I am D.B. Cooper, which is a very powerful uh, statement, uh, and it really caught my eyes. So then I I took those recordings. Uh, We organized those recordings because none of them were dated uh, or marked in any particular order. So we did our best to put them in chronological order. Um, And then I had them transcribed first from a service uh, and the transcriptions weren't of very good quality, certainly not good enough quality for a forensic linguist, which I am, to uh, evaluate the statements, the recordings, the transcript, to see if I could see uh, patterns of truthfulness or deception in them. So then I had my wife, Julie, uh, put in well over 100 hours refining those transcripts, putting in the detail that I needed to uh, do my analysis. She finally completed that, and uh, I spent the next months evaluating, analyzing, and uh opining on those transcripts as to whether or not they were truthful or deceptive. And I eventually found them to be very truthful. A hundred hours on working on the transcripts. That sounds so monotonous. It is. She's a retired school teacher and she did a marvelous job. She really did. (laughs) All right. You mentioned you're a, a forensic linguist. What makes you more qualified to analyze those tapes than the average person? Well, uh, my first book, Getting the Truth, is about forensic linguistics. Uh, I've been studying it for over 25 years now, applying it, researching it, um, and using it. So I've got a great deal of experience, uh, both uh, 
uh, supportive and non-supportive of, of the process and eventually grew to become an expert in it. And uh, uh, there are a couple different schools of thought on it. I say, Forensic linguistics is about gathering uh, evidence of language, uh, but I go further and I, and I talk about gathering evidence through communication which includes not just language, but also sign language, um, volume, rhythm, cadence, all of that which goes into communication. So I look to uh, identify patterns in communication, try to calibrate to the individual so that I get a feel for how they typically communicate get a fix on their uh, foundational communication pattern. And then I look for changes in those communication patterns. And uh, that's just the first step. When I find a change, and that change could be uh, a word pronounced differently than it had been before, a different pace, different rhythm, different volume, uh, use of a different word, uh, moving from active voice to passive voice. Uh, it could be any number of things that would tell me there's a change in pattern. And then I have to go in and look at that change and try to figure out what caused it. Could be it was caused by a, a loud noise. It could be uh, maybe the pen ran out of ink and the subject had to use a different pen. It could be uh, he or she all of a sudden remembered oh, I forgot to pick up milk at the store. Could be any distraction. And of course, one of those causes could be deception. And when you were, when you first got access to those tapes, what was your first impression? Well, the first step was to listen. And I listened to the tapes many times. And I listened for you know, trying to, trying to get a fix for, because it gives me more than just the two dimensions of a transcript, you know, the written word. Um, it gives me voice inflections. It gives me uh, the pauses between the answers uh, to the questions. It gives me the volume, pitch, and tone, uh, kind of the attitude of the speaker. There are many things I can look at or listen to and sense during a recording to get a feel for whether or not uh, the subject is speaking consistently or inconsistently. And if inconsistently, I got to figure out what's causing that inconsistency. In this case, I listened to the tapes many times and found that uh, Walt was consistent throughout the entire transcripts, all of them. And uh, that's a good sign for truthfulness, the consistency. I saw, I, I sensed no changes that were unexplained or didn't have a basis for them sufficient for me um, that I had declared that, uh, you know, he overall was being very truthful during the transcripts, during the recordings. What challenges are presented by the fact that he's being, Walt is being interviewed by a friend and not an investigator or a police officer? 
Very good question, Darren. Uh, I battled throughout this whole thing. Carl is a wonderful man. Uh, he's a commercial pilot. He's he's brilliant in many ways. Uh, he's not brilliant with a computer. He doesn't use emails, for example. Uh, when he writes, he writes out longhand. Um, uh, and I explained earlier about the tape recorder. He just isn't uh, uh, digital t digitally enhanced, let's say. Uh, but he's a brilliant man, nevertheless. Uh, he's also not an investigator. So many of his questions contaminated the responses. So I had to battle that throughout the whole analysis. For example, in some of, uh, one of the things I look at during my analysis is I count specific words and phrases and voices, for example, uh, throughout Walt's uh, uh, responses to the questions, to Carl's questions. And he used the, the term, you know, uh, well over 200 times. Now, typically, I would, I would uh, take a look at that because, and I did take a look at it, because that's kind of, a, that is a phrase which is used uh, habitually um, and often shows a lower level of stress when somebody uses a phrase like that. But I found that in Carl's questions, Carl contaminated Walt's responses using you know, because Carl used the you know frequently in his questions. So I, I disregarded the you knows in uh, Walt's responses. However, there was a uh, phrase that Walt used frequently, matter of fact, 214 times, I believe, uh, which was the phrase right there. He would say, I went to the plane right there. I grabbed uh, the bag right there, something like that. But he would use that phrase frequently throughout the transcripts. And uh, I counted those up 214 times. Carl never used that phrase in his questions, and therefore I could use that phrase in my analysis. It's important for a forensic linguist to find phrases like that because uh, those are phrases that indicate a lower level of stress. Um, you know, if you were to speak to the president of the company you work for, for example, you probably wouldn't use colloquialisms in your discussion with the president. You wouldn't use contractions and certainly wouldn't use phrases like right there, probably. You would be on alert and wanting to be on your best behavior. So talking to your president would present a little more stressful situation than your normal discussion with friends or with your wife, for example. So your communication patterns change when you're under stress and when you're under less stress, let's put it that way. So I use that phrase to see how it is located in the transcripts throughout the entire discussion. And it was used whether uh, Walt was talking about the hijacking or talking about the weather, for example. He used it in stressful, what should be stressful situations, 
and which should be unstressful situations. Another good indicator of truth-telling. The other thing I look for is um, I focus a lot on pronouns. The I pronoun is extremely important in forensic analysis. Um, The I pronoun shows responsibility, accountability, specificity, precision. Um, After all, when I say I did it, there's nobody else could have done it. I did it. And it's very specific, precise, and direct. Very little wiggle room there. Now, so I like the I pronoun, but I also like other pronouns like we and they and uh, she and me and us. Those are all very important in the analysis of uh, discussions to, to determine whether or not someone is being truthful or deceptive. Now, what I did uh, <clears throat> when I transcribed, had the transcripts of those recordings, there are 104 pages of just Walt's responses alone. So I color code them. I circle all the pronouns, make color code them. Uh, I'll circle the thes and all the articles just uh, just uh, that preface uh, objects, for example, the gun or a gun. Um, I circle uh, and color code right there's the you knows and all those things that give me uh, are worth uh, my study. And uh, I put all those pages on the floor and took like a, an aerial view, like a drone's view of the transcripts to see from an elevated position whether or not I saw any patterns in those transcripts. Uh, because if I see uh, pages without the I pronoun, I'm going to look at those pages where the I is not there and try to figure out why the I is not there. But in Walt's case, the eyes were homogeneously dispersed throughout every page, um, which indicates that he was responsible, accountable, and uh, precise, uh, which are all good indicators of truthfulness. So I looked at all of those things, uh, like the right there was was homogeneously I found that homogeneously throughout all the pages of the transcript, whether he was under stress or not. Um, And all of that, uh, I concluded that his truthful, his statement overall was very truthful. One thing that I got from reading uh, the the transcript, especially in your book, is it seems Carl is almost kind of pestering Walt on certain questions. Does that make it more difficult to analyze? when that's happening? Uh, well, even though Carl contaminated a lot of the questions with information, for instance, he talked about, uh, he, he, you know, he had a number of questions where he led Walter in a certain direction, but he often repeated questions as well. And uh, there was sufficient uh, repetition in there, even where he was directing Walt to talk about something, there were repeated, there was repetition enough there that uh, he gave Walt a lot of leeway to answer those questions 
And I was able to overcome a lot of that contamination, at least to my satisfaction. But you say pestering, he was repetitive. Um, one of the techniques of a good interrogator will be to ask the same question a couple times, you know, during an interview to compare responses. And uh, while I don't think that was Carl's strategy, I think he probably just forgot he had asked the question, but nevertheless, it gave me the opportunity to further analyze responses and gave me uh, sufficient leeway to uh, rely on Walt's responses. Have you analyzed uh, tapes like this before where it's a conversation between friends and not uh, an investigator or police officer? Well, that's a good question. I, I'm sure I have. Uh, nothing comes to mind, um, <clears throat> but I'm sure I have. And you spoke with Carl Lauren personally. Yes, I. well, I spent many hours with Carl. I interviewed him. I uh, evaluated him for truthfulness. I uh, evaluated his wife, Loretta, as well. Um, and uh, there's no question that Carl is uh, a truthful person, and he believes that Walt is uh, D.B. Cooper. And you said you analyzed Carl for truthfulness. Was that after you had already done most of your investigation on the tapes or in process? Probably in process. Um, I can't remember exactly when I uh, finally concluded that, uh, you know, this, uh, in all likelihood, this is Walter. Um, I think it was in the fall of 2016, maybe early 17. It was after we had identified and talked to uh, Jeff Osadich. Jeff Osadich, that's an interesting story. Can you tell us about him a little bit? Well, yeah, it's a very interesting story. And uh, so beyond the analysis of the transcripts and my opining that uh, Walt is truthful in stating that he is D.B. Cooper, we, uh, we went further into evidence gathering. Now, during in the transcripts, and I have an audio version, audible version of my book now that's available in the transcripts and the recordings are available on that for your audience to, to consider. But during that uh, recording, Walt talked about when he jumped out of the plane and uh, parachuted to an area called a Cleelum. Well, he didn't know it at the time, but he landed in a field uh, which was near Cleelum, Washington. And uh, you want me to go through that little scenario, how he landed yeah, and what he did? Mind. Let me do that. He, uh, he parachuted out of the plane while the plane left Seattle. The passengers were released. Uh, the money was on board. Uh, and the parachutes had been delivered by the FBI. And the plane was up in the air uh, heading for Reno. And... Uh, Walt uh, uses uh, some of the cords from one of the parachutes to uh, wrap the money up uh, in the satchel, put a cord around his neck, tying the, uh, the money to his body. 
and then he uh, he put his uh, and he put some money in the legs of his uh, pants as well, tied the tied the bottoms uh, so the money wouldn't fall out, um, and then uh, took the belt from his pants after he put the raincoat on with the money on uh, next to his body. He put his raincoat on and uh, put his pants belt around the waist of the raincoat to further um, keep the money close to his body. And uh, he took one of the parachutes and jumped out the rear of the plane. Uh, Of course, it was raining, cold. It was November 24th, 1971 in uh, Washington. And uh, just before he landed... And by the way, Walter was an experienced paratrooper. He had been in the Army paratrooping, and he was uh, with the Air Force Sea and Rescue Squad, uh, a very accomplished paratrooper, many night jumps in inclement weather. So he wasn't afraid of what he what he was facing there. So he jumped out, uh, and just before he landed, he saw in the distance some lights, uh, in the distance. Uh, and when he landed, he, he hit a tree, a dead tree in a field, uh, near Cleelum, broke his leg. Uh, finally, when he got out of the tree and on the ground, he took his, uh, parachute off, put it on the ground, covered it with branches, didn't bury it, but simply covered it. Uh, he took his raincoat off, took the money and uh, put the money in the raincoat, wrapped the raincoat around the money in a bundle, and then put the bundle under his arm and headed off, uh, even with his broken leg. He had he had suffered several broken legs in the past, so it was nothing new to him. He knew his leg was broken, but uh, he still was able to walk. And he got to the road and headed toward the lights. As he was walking toward the lights, he was passed by a dump truck. Now, uh, he eventually got to where the lights were, and it turns out it was a cafe. We now know it was the Tienaway Cafe, um, and he walked in, and inside uh, he saw a guy sitting at the counter dressed like a cowboy, had cowboy boots on, cowboy hat, cowboy outfit, uh, guitar. He was sitting there with his guitar, and the dump truck was out in the parking lot. Um, So Walt ordered a cup of coffee, and uh, he asked the cowboy, let's just call him Cowboy, who's later identified as Jeff Osadich, hey, if I call my buddy, will you tell him where, where we are, where I am, so he can pick me up? And Cowboy says, sure. So Walt goes up to the wall phone, and at that time it was a dial phone. He dialed up a guy, his old friend named Don Brennan, and uh, put Cowboy on the phone, and Don Brennan told him uh, he'd be coming down from Seattle area. And uh, Jeff said, well, then you got to come down to the Blewett Pass, and, and so on, and gave him directions to the Tianaway Cafe. And he hung up, finished his coffee, Walt bought his coffee, and then uh, uh, Jeff had is a singer, and he had to go to uh, 
the Grange Hall that night at 8 p.m. He was singing in a in a band. And so he left, drove his dump truck to the to the Grange Hall and performed that night. Uh, and then Kyle was picked up by Don Brennan later. Um, and Carl, or Walt gave uh, Don Brennan $6,000 for picking him up, said, now you're now you're part of this. You're involved. Uh, never to be spoken about again. And uh, Walt gets delivered to his home in Heartline. Uh, now, going back to the day before this happened, Walt had driven from Heartline to um, Spokane and uh, parked his car at a bus parking lot and rode a bus to Portland. And he went to, he parked his car in Spokane because he didn't want to leave his car in Portland where the police would be looking for cars that were left there overnight. So uh, that's why he, uh, that's what he had planned. So he got a ride to uh, Heartline and, and the next day he had another friend drive him from Heartline to uh, Spokane to pick up his car. And then he went on to join his family for Thanksgiving dinner. He worked that following Monday at uh, the Hoover Dam and uh, supervisor said, what's the matter with your leg? And he says, well, I think I broke it. Well, go down and see the doctor. He went down to the doctor and uh, the doctor said, this, is, this wasn't just broken today. This is an old break. And Walter talked to him. And anyway, the doctor said, well, I'm going to fix it anyway. So he, he fixed he, he put his uh, broken leg together, and uh, that's how Walt eventually healed. But it was important for Walt to go back to work that following Monday so he didn't raise any suspicion. So getting back to uh, Cowboy, uh, five years after these recordings were made, in 2013, I believe, Carl figures, well, I'm going to go try and see if I can't locate Cowboy. So he calls up a restaurant. Uh, he knew it was, uh, he knew the general area of this cafe uh, because of the description that Walt gave him about uh, what Cowboy gave uh, Don directions on how to get there. So he knew it was in that area. So he looked up on uh, some information source and found a restaurant in that area and asked the waitress, hey, I got a question. I'm looking for an old cafe that didn't serve beer, but served uh, coffee and sandwiches. And uh, she said, oh, you must be talking about the Tienaway Cafe after uh, Carl gave her a better description. And uh, she said, but that burned down eight years ago, which would now be 13 years ago or 14 years ago. Um, and a fire station was uh, built there. So it's no longer there. So Carl, who was a commercial pilot, uh, went ahead and flew into that area to see what he could find out. And he gets to that area. He finds the fire station uh, where the Tianaway Cafe once stood. And he uh, looked across the street, and there was a repair shop. It looked like it had been there for a long time. 
So he walked over and talked to the guy who owned it and said, hey, by any chance, do you know a guy who used to dress as a cowboy, drove a dump truck, played the guitar, and I think he was a singer? And the guy said, no. And in this is this is in the early 70s, Carl told the guy. And the guy said, no, but I'll put you in touch with the town historian. So Carl went over and gave that same spiel to the town historian. And the historian said, no, I don't know, but I'll give it to my son. Give me your name and phone number, and uh, I'll see if he knows of anybody. <clears throat> so a week later, Carl gets a phone call. Guy on the other end says, I, I hear you're looking for me. And it uh, turns out it was Jeff Osadich. And he tells uh, Carl, yeah, I remember that night. Uh, I was, uh, I passed him on the road. I couldn't pick up passengers. I mean, he gave all kinds of details. I couldn't pick up passengers because uh, my boss had told me I couldn't. And plus there was no room. And I uh, said, I stopped at the Tianaway Cafe. Great place. He described it same way uh, Walt did, and uh, said, I went on to play at the Grange Hall. I had a singing engagement. I substituted for a singer at uh, 8 o'clock. And uh, by the way, Jeff is a great singer. He's got a couple, well, he's got a CD out. His son's got a, a couple CDs as well. He's he's fabulous. Jeff is not just a witness in this case. He's a, he's, he's a key witness, but he's also a pillar of the community. He's been voted, uh, he was a former police officer in the area. He's been voted uh, twice as King Cole in the Katitas County uh, area uh, in 2017 and 2018. He's been voted twice uh, as King Cole. So he's a pillar of the community and a former police officer. And he remembers in his training to be very observant. He was very observant. He remembered all this. He reiterated almost in exact detail to what Walter gave us during the uh, the tape recordings five years earlier. And I interviewed uh, Jeff. Uh, I got written statements from Jeff. Uh, we got corroborating statements from a guy who loaned him the dump truck during the early 70s. So we know he drove a dump truck in the early 70s. Uh, we know he was a singer. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, he's a very good witness and his, his statement to me told me that he was being very truthful. Now, Carl also gave us information. I mean, Walter gave us information about house he bought in, uh, <clears throat> 1972, he bought a house in Spokane and he gave us the address and we found the owner of the home. Uh, when it, who had sold it to Walt, supposedly. So uh, uh, Dirk and Vern, I think, uh, I think uh, one of them went to uh, Spokane and interviewed the former owner uh, who described Walter to a T. And at that time, uh, Walt was going by the name Walter Racca, R-A-C-C-A, um, and he sold the home to uh, Walter and his wife. Walter paid cash. As a matter of fact, this guy uh, did not accept anything but cash. His name was Jim Everman. 
and uh, in those days. So he sold a home to Walter on a land contract, so it didn't appear in any uh, uh, ledgers as a mortgage or anything like that. He bought it with cash. Uh, so that checked out. So you've got a lot of these things, uh, many of these things that we could check out, have checked out and corroborate everything that Walter told us. Once you've checked both of those out, you must be pretty confident in the fact now that Walter Rucka is D.B. Cooper. Well, investigators are never 100% confident, uh, but there are so many coincidences here that are unexplained. Uh, there's no evidence that Walter had any contact with uh, Jeff Osadich, no evidence that Carl had any contact with Jeff Osadich before Jeff called him. Uh, matter of fact, Jeff Osadich had never met Carl until we, uh, in May of last year, uh, we brought Jeff up for uh, the unveiling of Carl's book. Um, Carl wrote a book on this case as well, his memoirs. Um, Gosh, you should remember the name of that book. Maybe you know it, Darren. What's the name of his book? It's D.B. Cooper and Me. A, there a you spy, go. Spy, My yep. Best Friend. Uh, blanking yeah. on the subtitle it, right now. but Yeah, but that's good. It's Carl Lauren, L-A-U-R-I-N, available on Amazon. But when we unveiled uh, that book, uh, before I, I published mine, mine was published in 2019, Carl's and... May of 2018, um, Jeff came up for that, and we all met him. Uh, I had interviewed him over the phone, but had not met him face to face. Uh, he, he's a good man. He's a very good man. Are there parts of the Walter Rucka investigation that make you unsure? The one part that that uh, bothers me, and it doesn't bother me so much that I that I uh, am not 95, 98% sure this is uh, Walter's D.B. Cooper, was the flight path. The flight path bothers me because the FBI had him flying in on a trajectory that would have been about 80 miles uh, west of Cleallum. <clears throat> now, part of... Part of my evidence gathering was to interview a pilot who flew out of Seattle that same route to Reno. And uh, uh, when Walt uh, told the pilots, let's go, he told them, I don't want you to fly higher than 10,000 feet. I want to go with the flaps down and the landing gear down, slow this plane down. And uh, but don't go over 10,000 feet. Now, this pilot, I asked him uh, with all his experience, and he's got decades of experience flying these large planes. He's, fl he's flown the 727. And uh, he tells me there's no way they would take the route that the FBI suggested because there were mountains on that route that were greater than 14,000 feet. And with those conditions, uh, rainy, cloudy, poor visibility, 
they couldn't have chanced that. I mean, they got uh, uh, they got the pilot, co-pilot, and the stewardess in addition to D.B. Cooper on board, and they're not going to risk that. So if they flow, they if they flew the uh, the route that takes them over Cleelum, the mountains there on that route would be less than ten thousand feet. So that was a better route, according to this experienced pilot. Um, he said, there's no way a good pilot would go the other way. So I couple that knowing that as an investigator, you would be very reluctant to give up a good flight path for fear that there would be uh, several thousand people combing those areas, those fields for the money that was believed to have been dropped by D.B. Cooper. Nobody felt that D.B. Cooper survived this fall. So that would attract a lot of people to comb those areas where the alleged flight path was. So the FBI would, I'm sure, keep that pretty quiet. So it it is consistent with what I would uh decide to do as an investigator. I wouldn't give the real flight path. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because most people that are real critical of the Walter Recca story use that point as why Walt isn't Cooper. Yeah, and I don't think that's enough to do it. Um, Everything else checks out. Um, And it's very reasonable to assume that uh, the flight path, you know, even uh, there was an old investigator who uh, interviewed the pilot and he, uh, I'm trying to remember who that FBI agent was, but he was one of the original investigators who said after interviewing the pilot, well, we might be as far as, 30 miles off on this flight path. Um, And uh, it it could be 30 to 40 miles east of where we thought it was. So even the FBI, I think, is uh, unsure of what the exact flight path was. Now, they had had jets, you know, threw up jets to uh, follow this plane. And... uh, with this plane filing, uh, flying at 200 miles an hour, the 727, the jets just flew right by, and they never were able to tail the plane. So nobody can zero in on what the real flight path was. And the radar in those days was so uh, rudimentary that uh, the plane couldn't be tracked uh, like they are today. Yeah, the technology just wasn't there in 1971. No, no, no. So everything points to it's very, very possible that the flight path uh, was much different than what the FBI published. Yeah, I mean, they they were looking in the wrong area, hundreds of miles away. Yeah, and maybe that was intentional. That's a good point. Yeah, as crazy as the D.V. Cooper hijacking is, Walt's story gets a little bit crazier after it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And uh, I don't go into that much, if at all, in my book. No, that's why I'm asking you. (laughs) (laughs) 
which is uh, getting the truth. I am DB Cooper, but uh, I don't get into that much. Um, the IDs that uh, you know after Walt started confiding in Carl, he sent a lot of evidence to Carl, old uh, IDs, uh, picture IDs, vaccination records, uh, his uh, <clears throat> contemporaneously written journals and phone books. Um, he even sent the, uh, he even sent the, the uh, leggings he wore uh, on the actual skyjacking to Carl. Carl's got them. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that indicates that Walter led a different life after uh, the skyjacking occurred. And remember, Walter had uh, robbed a big boy at gunpoint in uh, the Detroit area in 1970 or so. And that is why he ended up in the Washington state area because he, he skipped uh, uh, prosecution on that and uh, flew to or drove out to Washington to avoid any jail time on that case. So he was, he was wanted. Um, he told his niece, who uh, asked him at one point, and I interviewed her as well, uh, his niece and his sister, um, who had uh, reviewed Walter's, uh, he, uh, he, he gave Carl a confession that Walter, excuse me, Walter gave Carl a written confession about the D.B. Cooper case in which he says, I am D.B. Cooper. Uh, I didn't use that in my book because that was uh, told to Carl. Walt told Carl, and Carl took notes and then had someone else type that up. <clears throat> and then it was later given to Walter for him to sign as a confession. And uh, uh, I didn't use it because it was in Carl's words and not necessarily waltz so it was it was once removed and I and I didn't feel I could use it although I wanted to but I didn't feel like I could rely on it because it was Carl's words not Walter's but Walter reviewed that confession with his niece Lisa's story and his sister um, and he was uh, intended to sign that confession in front of a notary and his niece and sister talked him out of signing it because it uh, could be used in his prosecution. So at one point, um, he decided not to sign that. But when Lisa asked him, why did you do this, Uncle Walt? And Walt responded to her, I'd rather be dead than poor. He was so tired of being poor that he was willing to do anything to keep from uh, <clears throat> being poor. Um, so he never signed that. And there was an agreement with uh, Carl that Carl couldn't use his confession until the, the transcripts and the recordings until after Walt's death. Walt died in 2014. And uh, it was thereafter that, that Carl then 
started to uh, get this book going and uh, published it. But Carl actually got Walt's DNA submitted to the FBI while Walt was still alive. Yes. Yes, he did that uh, surreptitiously. Um, he gathered what he felt was good fluid uh, and then submitted that through an attorney called David Damore out of Florida. And I interviewed David Damore as well, found uh, everything to uh, corroborate what Carl told me, again, with an eye toward disproving, you know, or... or uh, but the uh, Carl's account was corroborated exactly by David Damore. Anyway, he went through Damore. Damore contacted the FBI and submitted Walt's DNA sample without the FBI knowing who Walt was to see if that matched anything they had on the D.B. Cooper case. And it took the agent several weeks to get back to Damore and uh, said there's no match. Uh, and then asked the question, kind of out of context, who was it that picked up Walt in uh, at the drop spot? So, and of course, the attorney didn't know and couldn't provide that information. But it it uh, it bothered Carl a lot that uh, the agent would ask that question. And then before the FBI came out with their uh, with their um, finding, Walt approached Carl just a few days after Carl had submitted the DNA to the FBI and said, well, you tricked me, you submitted DNA to the FBI. And Carl to this day has no idea how Walter would have known that. Um, but let's talk about the DNA for a little while. The best DNA uh, of course, in those days, 1971, there wasn't even a hint of what DNA evidence was. I mean, those are the days where photographs were, weren't digitalized. There were no databases of photographs or fingerprints and certainly no DNA evidence. And coupled with that, uh, since it, it wasn't a viable uh, process, uh, whoever seized evidence later to be used for DNA examination, if they didn't store that evidence properly, they could destroy that DNA evidence. Now, in this case, they apparently had a tie that the uh, hijacker that Walt says he bought at a haberdashery um, they took a tie and got some DNA off that tie that the hijacker left on the plane. Um, now, we don't know how that, you know, at the time they didn't know about DNA. So chances are real good that that tie was contaminated. Um, we don't know. They would have saved the tie in those days for fiber evidence, for example. Um but they wouldn't have any idea about DNA evidence. So it depends how they stored that tie. In any case, uh, the FBI says that DNA evidence off the tie is only good to, um, is a very, a very poor quality. So it wasn't real good evidence. Um, 
the best evidence would have been, or one of the best evidence pieces would have been the Raleigh cigarettes. Now, according to the FBI reports, they seized uh, where the uh, where the hijacker was sitting, seven or eight Raleigh cigarette butts. Uh, now, Walt smoked Raleigh cigarettes, and he smoked them. Uh, he was a he smoked all the time. Uh, so that matches up with our evidence. Now they seized those, and uh, had they preserved that evidence in uh, proper containers, that would be good DNA evidence. And uh, we could resolve this in our heartbeat uh, with uh, Walt's DNA evidence and compare it to those Raleigh cigarettes. That would be a, a very, very uh, good match if, if they could get that. But we're told that they've lost or they can't locate those Raleigh cigarettes now. In any case, chances are good if it wasn't stored properly. If, for example, they, they stored it in plastic bags, uh, that would destroy the evidence, uh, the DNA evidence, and uh, it, it would be useless. So uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things here. What I am hoping, and one of the things I did was um, we got endorsements from many FBI officials many law enforcement officials, the uh, inspector general, former inspector general of the Social Security and assistant director of Secret Service, uh, James Hughes, um, Kathleen McChesney, the uh, third in charge of the FBI back when the FBI was run by none other than Robert Mueller. Um uh, Another special agent in charge, Jim Esposito, who I worked the Hoffa case with, who was uh, in charge of the Newark, New Jersey office. Fine people. My two directors of the state police, the uh, police chief in uh, Beaverton, Oregon, uh, David Bishop, um, uh, prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, former U.S. attorneys, former state prosecutors who say that Hey, based on uh, the evidence that Joe Koenig's presented in this book, I would authorize a warrant for Walt Recca's arrest as a D.B. Cooper. So there's a lot of good evidence there. But um, one of the reasons I went after those endorsements was because I hope it's sufficient impetus for the FBI to pick up my book and go through the transcripts and uh, look at uh, information that only the kidnapper or the skyjacker would be able to reveal uh, to those uh, the crew on that aircraft. And uh, I think there's sufficient detail in the conversations there that would enable them to make that determination and finally solve this case. Do you think, let's say Walt is alive, do you think he could be prosecuted today? Absolutely. He would be, according to these former prosecutors. Hmm. Do you think that they would prosecute the case uh, with him passed away as a way to close the case? No, no. Uh, but the FBI could certainly uh, conclude that a Walt Recca is D.B. Cooper and this case is solved. That's what I'd like them to see. Yeah. 
because they uh, they issued I, I can't remember what it's called, but a John Doe. Yep, yep. They have they have a warrant, uh, so the statute of limitations is running. You know, it's not uh, so they could prosecute Walt Recca if he was alive. And uh, I have a former U.S. attorney who says, yeah, basically that, that uh, they would prosecute him. There's sufficient evidence there. Matter of fact, I have three prosecutors who said that. Have you spoken to Don Brennan? Don Brennan is dead. Don Brennan is dead. Okay, that would make it difficult to speak to him. Yep, Uh, yep. I think it's interesting that Walt gave him $6,000. That's like the exact amount of money that was found on Tina Barr. Well, that's another unanswered question. How did the money get to Tina Barr, Tina Barr? And uh, uh, Don Brennan lived in that area. He could have traveled into that area. He was very leery of, uh, he had spent time in jail, I believe. Um, he, uh, he was very leery of law enforcement and very nervous about it. Matter of fact, he used to call Walt almost every month, uh, every year after uh, this happened, and he would never once speak about the uh, the money or the skyjacking. He told Walt, I won't speak about that. So Walt never brought it up. And uh, so he's very leery of uh, getting caught up in that. And it's very possible that, you know, he may have tossed the money or, or hid the money or gave it away or there, there are any number of possibilities, but uh, it's, it's a mystery to us as to how that money got there. What do you think the most damning piece of evidence against Walter is? Well, a confession is always a gold standard. Um, so you have the confession, and he does, he, he admits to every element that you would need to uh, prosecute the man. Um, Jeff Osadich is a key witness, as is Jim Everman. Um, the stewardesses, uh, and I believe they may still be alive, <clears throat> may be excellent witnesses. I don't know. Um, I never attempted to interview them or any of the agents involved in the case. Um, But they would certainly be critical. Uh, Maybe if they listened to the recordings, they would say, yeah, that's his voice. Um, uh, Certainly the details in the conversations that Walt gives in those recordings uh, might uh, generate some memories uh, in those stewardesses to say that, yeah, that's that's exactly what he said. Now, the FBI, as good as they are, would have uh, gotten very detailed uh, interviews of those stewardesses to include very, very specific details uh, of the conversation. And that's what I think will eventually solve this case, are uh, things that Walt says he told the uh, and discussions he had with the stewardesses, and they compare that to their 302s. And another thing, um, 
your listeners have to know is that the FBI doesn't record interviews. Very, they may even have a policy against recording interviews because I, I never knew them to record interviews. It's always a recollection, their recollection of what the subject said. Uh, so the questions and the responses are the recollection of the agent who conducted the interview. And they don't have transcripts, for example, which would be the best evidence. Why did you leave out some of Walt's uh, exploits after the hijacking from your book? Well, I wanted some focus. And uh, that was a good thing just to focus on the D.B. Cooper case. That has a life of its own. And uh, Vern and Dirk are pursuing that. Do you think there could be some sort of a, a puppet master or conspiracy to keep this case closed since Walt got into uh, who knows what exactly he was doing after the hijacking, but it appears he was some sort of international spy? Well, yeah, and that's uh, it, a possibility. That is a possibility. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I'd like to get your opinion on it. Uh, in May of 1985, Walt burns down his own pizza place, but then they they basically prove it was him, but then just let everything go and don't charge him with anything. Yeah, that was, that was unusual. I might add that, uh, you know, the investigator, the fire investigator there, Mike Malloy, was an old friend of mine. And I lived right down the road from uh, that Wixom area. Uh, for uh, 30 years back during that time. Um, he, uh, uh, yes, that was interesting. Um, and I'm not sure what happened on that. We tried to get reports. Uh, we got some reports, uh, but not all of them. Uh, eventually, the prosecutor decided not to issue a warrant on that. And uh, I think a lot had to do with the son recanting his testimony that his dad did it. So they no longer had the one witness. Apparently, they didn't have sufficient circumstantial evidence to uh, make Walter the uh, charge Walter with that. But then it happened again about 15 years later. His house is raided. Was it by the ATF? Um, but anyways, he's a convicted felon and his place is full of guns and he's never charged with anything there either. That's, that is, um, kind of unusual as well. Uh, it all depends on, uh, you know, I haven't uh, interviewed the parties involved in that, many of whom are, are no longer around or available, but yes, that's, uh, that's an interesting case. Why do you think he was able to just sort of skate from those? I don't know, other than um, it's not easy to charge somebody. Uh, you have to prove knowledge, intent, and all the elements that go with charging it. And you've got to be able to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, that's a high standard. So it could be that there just wasn't sufficient evidence 
Uh, although Walt says um, either in these recordings or some other time that he hid some of those guns so well that the, the authorities didn't find all the guns, but they did find a sufficient quantity. And I don't know, maybe there was, maybe Walt uh, cooperated with them and gave them something else because there's a lot of that goes on, you know, where a guy uh, escapes prosecution because he gives up somebody else. Why do you think Walt was able to find out about that DNA test? I have no idea. And it it could be uh, Carl's paranoia. Um, I don't know exactly <clears throat> the circumstances. It's a little vague. Um, so I'm not sure. It just, that's such a crazy story that he would find out about it in the first place, but that the FBI agent would ask who drove the getaway car. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't have transcripts of that either. I don't know how, what the context was or any of that. Um, a lot of that supports this after the hijacking life of uh, Walt Recca. Have you looked into any of the uh, investigations into the tie that Tom K is doing? Uh, I'm not familiar with Tom K's. Uh, Tom K did or... a bunch of work on the tie, uh, particularly exotic metal particles on the tie. Oh, well, that would that would tend to corroborate Walter because he worked at the Hoover Dam, you know, but. Um, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't studied any of his work. Did you compare uh, Walt to any of the other suspects when you started investigating the case? I did not. I stayed away from that. That's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> what has your experience been with the story, um, as far as the public's reaction? Or uh, it sounds like you're kind of staying away from the Cooper vortex in general, but. What have you thought of the reaction to Walt's story? Well, uh, I am a little surprised that uh, Walt Recca has been so quickly dismissed by people. Um, and I thought my book would uh, resolve that because uh, there's so much evidence there. Um, and while I haven't studied all the others, there seems to be more speculation and more assumptions in uh, putting together the cases on the other suspects, whereas mine and ours on uh, Walt Recca is evidence-based and uh, a very, very strong evidence-based case. So I think eventually uh, people will come around to realizing that Walt Recca was D.B. Cooper. And I'm hoping that the FBI will will pick it up and uh, take a closer look and finally resolve their case as well. Why do you think the Walter Recca story isn't getting the attention it deserves? Uh, good question. We, uh, you know, we don't have much of a marketing budget. Uh, we don't uh, do a lot of those things. So um, that some of the other folks have been doing, um, we haven't invested the kind of money in the marketing, it's simply relying on the evidence. And uh, it, it just takes time. Well, I think that's the right way to go about it. 
I mean, if there were commercials out for the product, I think that sort of poisons it in people's minds. Well, thank you, Darren. I appreciate that. What do you think people should know about the case, especially uh, regarding Walt? Well, I think they should uh, read the book and or listen to the tapes. Uh, the tapes are even better because it's an audible of my book, uh, but it also includes the uh, the original recordings. But I think once they once they do that, they will find that those who are interested in, in solving this case, they will find that the evidence is overwhelming that uh, Walt Reck is D.B. Cooper. I really like the Walter Recca story. I, f- I feel like most of the other suspects, they go down the exact same path, that it was this super well thought out, super well planned, and e- exactingly executed. Whereas Waltz is kind of like, yeah, I just wanted to commit a crime with a parachute and uh, got lucky kind of along the way. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he says there was no plan. And uh, but yet he had, you know, he he drove to Spokane so his car wouldn't be discovered. He took a bus to uh, to uh, Portland. He stayed in a hotel that we've got to check that out. But we've uh, I've got an old buddy from retired Portland PD guy who says, yeah, I think I know that 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 bar restaurant he's describing. So um, he. He's the man. I, there's very little doubt in my mind. What outcome are you hoping from this investigation? Is that it's solved and things closed? Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my ultimate goal is to have the FBI pick it up and uh, solve this case once and for all because I do believe that Waldrecke is D.B. Cooper. And uh, by doing so... Uh, you know, I don't think it would take much work on their part to uh, put a put a final dot on this case. Do you think there's more work to be done, or are you satisfied with the work that's done on the case? No, there's a lot of work could be done, you know, that the FBI could do. For example, you know, maybe the telephone records at the Tianaway Cafe are still available somewhere. I mean, they're going back to 1971, but you never know. And the FBI could... could follow that. Uh, They could, uh, you know, they would typically interview the witnesses. They would interview Lisa Strong and uh, Walt's sister. They would uh, interview any officers involved. Um, They would uh, talk to Jim Everman, for example, and get the records, get any signatures. And if they had those Raleigh cigarettes, they would uh, they would get DNA from uh, uh, Walt's DNA burial and compare it to uh, the DNA that would most certainly be on those Raleigh cigarettes and resolve this once and for all. I actually, uh, Bill Rollins sent me an FBI document from the Freedom of Information, and it actually says on there that to examine the cigarettes for the cigarette butts for evidence. And then when you're done to throw them in the garbage. So they weren't lost. It was actually a decision to throw them away when they were done collecting evidence. Okay. Well, hopefully when they, uh, when they, 
you know, withdrew the evidence from from those that included DNA evidence, which you know they had no idea there it was would be a future tool at that time. But hopefully they did that. Yeah, that would be nice. Do you think? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of asking the same question again. Do you think there's any chance that there is someone or something or some agency preventing this from being solved? I doubt it, Darren, but it is a possibility. I mean, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, how old are you? 33. Okay. Well, I'm 73. There have been a lot of stories, a lot of documentation, a lot of uh, evidence over the years that indicates that uh, things aren't necessarily what they seem to be. And even uh, today with the propaganda that uh, is being generated in the media um, and in other social circles, it's hard to tell what what is true and what isn't. So um, certainly the intelligence agencies are capable of doing some of the things that we think they're capable of doing uh, and uh, uh, delaying the uh, release of information that might make them look bad in later years. I mean, we've seen that, you know, with the Pentagon Papers and many other things. Um, So it's very possible. If you could interview Walter Recca, what would you ask him? Well, the first thing I'd do is ask him to uh, tell me what happened and get uh, as best as possible an uncontaminated version from his perspective about what happened. And from that, then I would uh, develop and structure questions to drill down on the uh, on the information he provided to uh, get um, a very good case, which we have already. But I would like to know some details that uh, aren't disclosed in these transcripts. Is there anything specifically that sticks out in your mind that you wish you just had that one piece of information? Well, I'd like to know what banks he put his money in, in Canadian banks. He said he went across the border and put his money into some Canadian banks. I'd like to know what those banks were. And then the FBI, for example, could get that information and and uh, see what uh, uh, what they could do with that. Um there, there's a lot of information that uh, I'd love to talk to Walt about. A lot of people say that, you know, the money, none of the money was ever found. It would have been so difficult to track that money. And with your experience in law enforcement, do you understand why we never found any of the money aside from what was dug up on Tina Bar? Oh, yeah. You know, I spent, uh, after I retired from the state police in 1993, I spent uh, a little over two years with uh, Chase Bank, what's now Chase Bank. At that time, it was National Bank of Detroit in internal audit. So I know the the banking industry somewhat. Uh, I know how busy they are. Uh, In those days, you know, you didn't have computers. Uh, people, banks didn't use computers. Uh, so 
even though the FBI put out a directive, be on the lookout for these serial numbers on these $20 bills, nobody has the time to look at those. Uh, if you had a computer, for example, that that might be possible. I, I don't even think the Fed now records serial numbers when they destroy money. I think they just destroy it. Uh, no banks are going to take the time to look at the $20 bills that are brought into their bank uh, to check for the serial numbers. They just don't have time or the resources to do so. Yeah, especially since the bills were non-sequential. Right. Yeah, it's just it's just impossible. And we have a banker who uh, Dirk interviewed and videotaped who says, yeah, that, that never would have happened. Outside of the flight path, have you heard any criticism about your work regarding Walter Recca? I have not, Darren. I'd, I'd welcome criticism because uh, I'd like to improve it, but uh, I have not. I've just heard good reports. Well, that's good. Yep, yep, One so far. I want to say about your book that I really enjoyed when I got it and I just was kind of flipping through it. I thought, man, most of this book is a transcript of the tapes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started reading the book and I really enjoyed going over the transcripts of the tapes. I felt like I was going over it with you. Like you were <laughs> showing me your work on the transcript as I was reading it. Well, good. Never... That's, that's what it was intended for. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I've never read anything like that, and I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and uh, do, you, uh, do you understand the arguments and the conclusions? Yeah, absolutely I do. Okay, okay good. Well, Joe, do you have anything else to tell us about, uh, about Walt Recca? No, I don't. I just want the FBI to pick it up and uh, use uh, use my book to solve the case. That's all I want. Have you been disappointed in the reaction or lack of a reaction from the FBI about this? No, they're busy, as you well know. Uh, you know, this would take kind of a special directive and a uh, special effort. And... Uh, <clears throat> But I think it's worth it. In the end, I think it's worth it. And I think at some point they will do that. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, can you uh, tell the audience where they can find you and your work? Thank you, Darren. Yes. Um, go to the website www.kmiinvestigations, all one word, dot com. And uh, go to the bookstore, and uh, all my products are available there. Uh, if they order it through that bookstore um, at www.kmiinvestigations.com, uh, they can, uh, I'll autograph the copy for them, and uh, they'll get it in the mail. I should have done that. I just ordered it on Amazon, so mine doesn't have an autograph in it. <laughs> Well, hopefully one of these days we'll we'll meet Darren and I'll and I'll sign your book for you. Do you have any plans on coming to the DB Cooper convention in November? I didn't even know about it. So, uh perhaps my wife and I like to travel, so I would love to see that area. I'm told it's beautiful. <clears throat> I met Dirk and, and Vern there last year. Yeah, so I'd I'd love to do that, but I hadn't heard about it. Is there another one in November? Yes, yeah. Okay. Well, if I do, I'll uh, 
I'll be able to see uh, Jeff Osadich and you, and uh, that'll that alone will be worth it. Absolutely, that sounds great. Well, thank you for coming on, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Darren. You're a real. Uh, it's a it's a very good experience to work with you. Oh, thanks. It was my pleasure. It was really exciting to have Joe on the show. Be sure to pick up both of his books, Getting the Truth, and his latest, Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper. I really enjoyed reading as he dissects the Walt and Carl confession tapes. If you're listening to this, I know you will too. For more info on Walter Recca, be sure to check out D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend by Carl Lauren, and the accompanying doc, D.B. Cooper, The Real Story. There are links to it all in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or wondering why we haven't covered your suspect, let us know. You can reach us on Facebook, we are The Cooper Vortex, on Twitter, at dbcooperpodcast, or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. The show's totally free. All that we ask is you please leave a review wherever you listen. Thank you to Joe Koenig for sharing his work on the case with us. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who is also a true professional. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.